so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Kidd, the Vardaman Endowed Professor of History at Baylor University, as well as a new professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, we talk about his new book with Yale University Press entitled Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Dr. Kidd has written for multiple outlets, including the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. He blogs at Evangelical History and at the Gospel Coalition website. His recent works include Who is an Evangelical? A History of a Movement in Crisis from Yale University Press, as well as Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father, both from Yale University Press. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Kidd, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, I want to learn a little bit about your background, your story, what got you interested in studying history, and then specifically what drew you into American history? Well, I was a political science major as an undergraduate at Clemson University, and I also became a Christian my freshman year in college. And so that sent me, obviously, on a different spiritual trajectory, but also an intellectual one of just learning what it's like to think as a Christian. Um, And I had some great mentors at Clemson. Clemson's a public university, but I had some believing professors who really helped me with that, and I, I found myself gravitating more and more towards uh, history. Um, I was a history minor and found my research interests going towards history and, and particularly uh, you know, religious topics. I got really interested in the, the Puritans in particular, and uh, I found myself in some ways thinking about history in more of an autobiographical way. And where, where do I come from as a Christian? Where did my church come from as, as a Christian? And like most historians, I have interests in all kinds of topics. I, mean, I, I think I could enjoy writing on all kinds of different things, but I, I really started to focus a lot on the Puritans. Uh, and I ended up going to Notre Dame for my PhD, where I worked with George Marsden, who uh, is a well-known Christian historian. And he, he was doing, I think, some of the best work uh, on history from a, a Christian perspective, but in kind of mainstream academia. 
And so that's where I sort of cut my teeth on, you know, history from a Christian perspective, but also doing stuff that could get published with secular academic presses. And I've really found actually that the secular academic presses a lot of times are sort of happily open to Christian perspectives, unlike some quarters in academia that can be, you know, really hostile to Christian perspectives. The presses uh, operate a little more like a business. Uh, I mean, they are businesses, and so they they seem to be open to maybe a little more open than in some other quarters to different kinds of perspectives. But they just, you know, you can't assume when you write for presses like that that your audience is all Christian. And so part of what I'm doing, I think, is is writing history from a Christian perspective as much as a witness, as as a sort of pastoral role. And, and so even though I've spent my whole career at a Christian university, I, I've mostly published for uh, secular presses like the Yale University Press, which published the Jefferson biography. And so that that's sort of where where I've I've come from, you know, balancing that kind of having a foot in uh, secular academic publishing, and and but also being a person who's who's deeply involved and, and committed to the life of the church. Well, that's one of the reasons I was so excited to have you here on the podcast. Is you are widely respected as a historian, also as a Christian leader who's thinking through a lot of these issues. You know, not segmenting your faith from everyday kind of interactions, especially in your writing, but at the same time being very honest about the past, about how we can navigate some of these challenges and things. So I'm really looking forward to the conversations today. Um, Before we dive into Thomas Jefferson's As the Man, I think it's helpful, and I've learned this from you and others, to kind of analyze the context in which they inhabit. Um, I think it's easy for us to go right into kind of the the meat of it and say, well, who is this man and all those type of things. And those are important questions and we'll get to them. But understanding the context in which someone inhabits, uh, the environment, the challenges, the questions that people are asking, I think can shed a lot of light on how that person is thinking and why they're thinking the things they're thinking. So I want to ask you that in terms of Jefferson, I think a lot of people are kind of familiar with him at in general, maybe there's some misconceptions we'll talk about later. But what kind of environment was he inhabiting? What kind of questions were being asked, and what challenges were they facing as a society? Well, right. I mean, one one thing I would say is just to affirm your inclination is that you, you historians are always thinking about understanding people in the context of their own time, which we assume is different from our context, right? And, and so the famous quote is. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And so I tend to come to somebody like Jefferson assuming that he's different from anybody today rather than just like somebody today. And I I think that that is the kind of history that gets people on the right and the left in trouble is that they use people in the past uh, as just sort of a stand-in for, you know, maybe some politician today or some kind of political opinion where I actually find one of the most valuable things about history is that it shows you in a lot of cases that things can be different from the way they are today. The past shows us, you know, different ways of of living and and different kinds of assumptions about what's normal and what's what's, uh, natural. So anyway, all that to say that Jefferson is, I mean, he's, he's caught, I think there are innumerable tensions in Jefferson's life, but one of them is that he's he's better known, I think, as a as an exemplar of quote the Enlightenment, which is you know a broad intellectual trend of the 1700s, roughly, 
towards what the advocates of the Enlightenment considered more rationality, more science, more you know naturalistic understanding of of the world and the universe, and it often tends to be more uh, secular-minded than perhaps perspectives that had come before. But Jefferson is also very much a child of colonial Virginia um, and all of the things that come along with that, uh, most obviously slavery and uh, gentility and the expectations that are put on uh, gentlemanly families like the one that Jefferson grew up in, even though he's living somewhat on the frontier of colonial Virginia, but he's also trying to, his family is trying to manifest what it would be like to be a, a proper British colonial gentlemanly genteel family. Um, and that, that comes with a certain provincialism to Jefferson's life. And I, I think that that probably is, is one of the defining tensions of his life is this kind of very local identity of being a colonial Virginian and then aspiring to be a, a kind of world intellectual leader uh, and, a, and a signal member of the, the Enlightenment. So diving in on Jefferson, the man. So I think Jefferson, I mean, is a common household name. We learn about him in early in history throughout our elementary, middle, and high school. Many of us have taken some type of U.S. history class in college, um, if we've gone, or seminaries and things like that. So you, you learn a lot about, but there are a number of Jefferson biographies on the market, some popular, more, some more scholarly. What is distinct about this specific one that you just published with Yale? What makes it a little bit different than maybe what's already on the market? Yeah, I mean, so, so a lot of the, you know, the big doorstop Jefferson biographies, ones by John Meacham or John Bowles or two of the most popular ones, I mean, tend to just be, you know, very political kind of almost a day-by-day, blow-by-blow account of what he did in his mostly political life while not neglecting issues about slavery and culture and family life and, and those sorts of things. Mine is is more focused on uh, Jefferson's religious views, spiritual views, but it's broader than that, too, in the sense that it's a kind of moral biography of Jefferson, a biography of Jefferson's sort of moral universe. And what I'm trying to do is answer what I think is the most pressing question about Jefferson, which is, you know, how can he live the way that he did when he's the one who said all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? People wonder, you know, how how in the world could he say that and then own hundreds of people as slaves and now it's it's broadly, if not universally, accepted among Jefferson scholars that he was in a longstanding sexual relationship with his slave Sally Hemings, um, a, a relationship that probably produced a, a number of children. How could he do that? And and usually the the discussion doesn't get much past hypocrisy. And I, I think that's there's a way in which Jefferson is hypocritical, but I think that there's a lot more to say about it. And so what I'm trying to do is understand his moral universe and the tensions, the fraught nature of his wide-ranging ethical and philosophical and spiritual commitments, which included a commitment ultimately, one that didn't come decisively until he was president, but a commitment to Jesus's ethics, 
but also the gentility of that Virginia upbringing in a slave-owning society. And then, you know, deep influences from the Enlightenment, so-called rationality, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he, he's, he's a tangle of all these kind of moral and philosophical and spiritual commitments. And so I'm basically trying to get in there and say, yeah, okay, hypocrisy, that's probably fair to some extent. But what is this moral, philosophical, and religious world that he lives in? And how then does that lead to, or at least inform, the kind of life that he actually lived? So I guess to dig in a little bit there, it's kind of framing up his moral and ethical universe. Obviously, you spoke about Jesus's ethics, but also this kind of gentility, but then also you have this kind of enlightenment, rationalistic kind of vein. How did he, obviously, you've talked about in the biography, you talk about how he's a troubled man, but also this kind of tangle of various worldview beliefs, if we want to use that language. Um, help us to kind of maybe not straighten it out because that may not be possible, especially in a short podcast, but kind of get a, our heads around it. So what are some of these bigger tensions, maybe outside of the slavery question that we're going to come to later, but some of these tensions, at least in his worldview, or at least the way that he's framing them up? Because in someone's mind, they think they're perfectly consistent. Often we think we are, um, but we're, we may not be. Um, and so I think it's helpful for all of us to kind of evaluate our worldview. I talk a lot about that with my students, to be aware of our own worldview, to question ourselves, and to be thinking through those things. But how did Jefferson kind of frame up his moral universe and kind of his code of ethics, along with all of these kind of tangling of uh, various ideas? Yeah, I think worldview is a good way to talk about the tensions in Jefferson's mind uh, and philosophy. And I don't think that he ever fully sorted out which worldview he was basically committed to. And so what that produces is, you know, several besetting tensions in his life. Probably the most obvious one is slavery. I mean, he he says he knows that slavery is morally wrong in Christian categories and in the philosophical categories of the Enlightenment, which may be more or less sympathetic to Christianity. Another one is the the issue of, I guess, what you would call frugality and and the way that you live your personal life of of consumption and spending and and all that. He always, throughout his life, professed to be deeply committed to the you know principles and disciplines of modest spending and frugality and Republican small or Republican virtue, which always you know exalted. The idea of you know frugality and wisdom about your personal patterns of consumption and all this leading to personal independence because you're not you know you're not crushed by debt you're not you know on the hook to somebody else you're not a debtor to other other people I mean, this is just small R Republican philosophy 101 at the time and, and Jefferson was very influenced by that and would constantly be talking about professing to believe in that. But his code of gentility uh, led him to live a phenomenally undisciplined personal financial life uh, so that he gets to the end of his life. And in in modern day money, he has about $2.6 million in debt. Uh, And he, he dies with that much debt in his life. And so, you know, people say, well, why didn't he free his slaves? You know, when he said he knew it was immoral, one of the reasons is because he's under this burden of incredibly crippling and personally embarrassing debt. 
and so which is going to win out of you know, this kind of Christian, smaller Republican virtue or gentility and believing that you have to display yourself as a gentleman and host constant dinner parties and live in the most, you know, the finest mansions and send your children to the finest schools and all that. He just never got that figured out. And then uh, a final one, a tension, source of tension is, is his view of uh, Christianity specifically. I mean, we know him as maybe a deist, though he didn't call himself a deist. Ben Franklin called himself a deist, but but Jefferson didn't use that term to apply to himself uh, much at all. I think he becomes a sort of Unitarian Christian by the end of his his life, but you know he's deeply skeptical about any kind of transcendent claims about Christianity. He does not believe in the, the divinity of Christ. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. You know all the kind of basic major doctrines of orthodox, small orthodox Christianity. And so, you if he was alive today, you would expect him to be you know, sort of dismissive of Christianity or, and the Bible and all this, but it turns out he's actually obsessed with the Bible, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's so surprising. I mean, he's, he's constantly reading the Bible, uh, and he reads it in the New Testament in Greek. He reads the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Bible, uh, regularly as an adult. And every time there's a new edition of the Greek New Testament or the Septuagint, he insists that his book buyers get him copies of it. And so his library is just full of the latest kind of academic research and, and, and biblical texts, authoritative editions while he's president. Right? <laughs> he has other things to do, right? I mean, but, but he, he so focused on the Bible and that helps to explain what probably many people listening have, have heard of. It's the Jefferson Bible, late in his life that he he produces two different versions of the Gospels with most of the miraculous stuff literally cut out with scissors. Well, I mean, you have to know the text of the Bible pretty well to be able to produce something like that. Um, You you have to be engaged in a very hands-on way, but he's deeply skeptical about traditional Bible doctrine. So this is one of those places where you think that, you know, these new atheists today and so forth, they tend to be just contemptuous of the Bible, and they don't know much about it in many cases. But Jefferson is a lay Bible expert in spite of his skepticism. So that's another defining tension of his life. Well, I know kind of balancing, we've talked obviously a lot about his deficiencies and some of the conflictions within his worldview and his ethical outlook on life, but also he is a brilliant man. So at the same time, and obviously you've spoken to kind of the Jefferson Bible and how steeped in biblical knowledge he was uh, from a lay perspective, what are some of the areas of kind of brilliance that we see in his life and some of the good that has flowed, maybe not all the way to today, but a lot of his influence is still seen at least within our nation? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked that because, you know, the the book tries to be you know, even-handed, but there's definitely a lot of negative about the way that he lives the, these unresolved tensions. But I don't want to overlook the fact that a great, enormous good came out of Jefferson's work. We've already cited the Declaration of Independence. I mean, I don't have to tell you that it's it's the most important political document in American and probably in world history, at least uh, political history. And the reason it's so powerful is because it is the most powerful argument made in human history for human equality. 
it's equality by creation. And it's not a specifically Christian argument that he's making, but it is a deeply theistic uh, argument that we're all created by God and God has given us equal rights. And people like Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, a- appropriated that that argument, the logic of that argument to make enormous strides uh, in civil rights and human equality. And so, so um, there's just enormous power there, power as a writer, power as a thinker, his deep commitment to religious liberty. I, I think Baptists in particular uh, loved him at the time and should love him for that today, uh, that he is a pioneer along with James Madison. Uh, and they cooperated with thousands of Baptists at the time in particular, and other evangelicals too, in the crusade for uh, religious liberty and full religious freedom in particular, getting rid of the established state churches, um, which often persecuted Baptists. Uh, Jefferson was very happy to cooperate with Baptists in that, in that cause. So lots of good things, especially on the level of ideas, political ideology came out of Jefferson's work. And, and he, I mean, part of it is he's just absolutely phenomenally brilliant. There's no downplaying that at all. So I'm really glad you brought up religious freedom and religious liberty. Um, so as Baptist, obviously, that's a key Baptist distinctive. And earlier this spring, you and I had the great pleasure of hearing a lecture from Dr. Eric Smith, who's a, a pastor in Tennessee, but also a assistant professor of church history at Southern Seminary. And he just recently released a new biography of John Leland, uh, which is really the first biography of John Leland. It's kind of striking that how influential Leland is, especially in the religious freedom movement among Baptists to not have an actual biography. So we had the pleasure of hearing a little bit about Leland and understanding kind of the history there and his kind of quirkiness um, <laughs> throughout his entire life. But you mentioned Jefferson has a relationship with Leland and thousands of other Baptists. Can you speak a little bit more to kind of his understanding of religious freedom and how Baptists may have influenced his understanding? Yeah, I mean, so, so Jefferson grows up in a world where uh, Virginia in particular has an official state church. It's the Church of England. It's, you know, the traditional church of the British colonies um, uh, outside of New England, where the the Church of the Puritans, the Congregationalist Church, was the established church. And Jefferson became persuaded in the 1760s and, and 70s, along with James Madison, that it was a bad idea for the government to have an official tax supported a denomination that it sponsored. That's what everybody at the time of the founding meant by an establishment of religion, as the First Amendment put it. Now, I think that Jefferson had a little bit different reason than the Baptists for being opposed to an established church. Uh, Jefferson, by that point, is already embracing doubts about things like the Trinity uh, and, and to be in good standing with the Church of England. There were some doctrinal affirmations like that that he, he couldn't make. And so I think Jefferson is coming at this from a more skeptical perspective, while the Baptists look at it and say, you know, we, we just want freedom from persecution. We don't want an official church that's going to be hindering us from preaching where we want to and planting churches where we want to. But Jefferson and the Baptists reached the same conclusion, which is that religious freedom required the disestablishment of the state churches. And, and put religion on an entirely voluntary basis. 
And the Baptist said, if, if you just give us an equal playing field to preach the gospel in freedom, to teach what the Bible says in freedom, that, that's all we want. We don't need any support from the government to do that. And Jefferson was skeptical about what the Baptists taught in particular, but the principle of religious liberty in general, they totally agreed with. And that's partly why someone like Leland, who has polar opposite views from Jefferson on Christian doctrine, he loves Jefferson on the level of politics and religious freedom. And so that that makes this kind of strange but happy alliance between you know, evangelicals and Unitarians on on religious liberty. Well, so obviously there's kind of the elephant in the room. We mentioned it earlier about this the idea of slavery. Obviously, that's an incredibly immoral act and immoral practice and uh, that was extremely common at his time. Not only did he own slaves, but as you've talked about with Sally Hemings and others, like his legacy is steeped in that. And so it would be historically dishonest not to be talking about that. Um, and so we've, you've mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I want to pair that with a question of kind of thinking through how we navigate history. Because I think often when we think about history, we kind of can either be very rosy-eyed, like everything's great. Yeah, they had some deficiencies, but everything was basically great. Look at all the good that's come from it. Or we can look back at history and say, well, it's all bad. So there was this massive sin, hypocrisy in his life or others. So we're going to throw it all away. We just need to kind of rid ourselves of that part of our history. As a historian, um, who's also a believer and committed to these ethical ideals, how do we navigate that tension, especially with such an issue that's so immoral and evil as the practice of slavery that we see in Jefferson's life? How do you navigate that, or how would you encourage us to be thinking through being honest about history, but at the same time not dispensing with it as, because of this immoral practice? Yeah, and Christians in particular have often struggled with this. I mean, especially Christians who have a deep attachment to the American past, the American tradition have sometimes been inclined to sort of excuse or explain away some of these these patterns. Um, and so some of it is just being, you know, honest about about what's going on. I mean, that, that's not an especially innovative point, but I mean, you have to just kind of let the chips fall where they may. Now, with Jefferson, I mean, because he denied the Trinity and the resurrection and the divinity of Christ— I especially don't think that Christians looking at history should try to turn him into some sort of Christian in a doctrinal sense. I mean, he can he regarded himself as an ethical Christian, but not not a doctrinal Christian in any kind of recognizable form. And I, I think that would be in some ways an even more fundamental mistake, because then you're talking about obscuring what the gospel is. And, and for us as evangelicals, <laughs> that's not something that we should be willing to do. But but I think that there is a connection in that if you see America as a Christian nation, and I definitely think that America has deep Christian influences, but if you see America as a Christian nation, then you may be also be tempted to try to wedge all of America's founders into a Christian mold. But I think that that would be a mistake with Jefferson definitely in a doctrinal sense. Um, but in, in, a, in a moral sense, you know, obviously he, he owned slaves, but he also said that slavery was immoral. In, in fact, one of the most remarkable quotes from his whole career is in Notes on the State of Virginia, 
from the 1780s when he says, I tremble for my country when I consider that God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever with regard to slave owning. I mean, that that's like, yeah, that doesn't sound very deistic, right? I mean, that sounds like he's expecting providential judgment, wrath of God to come down on Americans, white Americans, because of slave owning. And, and yet he doesn't, certainly on a personal level, he does a very little about uh, emancipation or anything like that. He does free a few slaves, some of whom are, are sort of favored tradesmen that work for him. And then we think uh, a few of them that he let run away uh, were his own children, which is obviously problematic in, uh, in some really conspicuous ways. So so I think what you have to do is, is just let the chips fall where they may, when even with people that you tend to really like his, historically, you also just have to let the past tell its own story. But on the other side of it, I would also say I'm not much given to this sort of iconoclasm, you know, canceling people, because it seems to assume that we know that we would have done better if we had been in their position. And so one of, one of the hard truths I think you realize about history is is how captivated we can be by our own culture and you know the expectations of our culture and the pressures that our culture puts on us and so i often tell my students you know hey what whoever you are today if if you were born into a white slave owning family you know at the time of the american founding it is almost virtually certain you would have died as a pro slavery slave owning person and so it, you have to be willing to account for that and not get involved in this kind of you know moral posturing about how how much better we are than the people in the past because you know what whatever it is i mean people if the lord tarries i mean we're we're going to have people looking back at, at us in 200 years and say what was the matter with those people <laughs> you know the, these morally reprehensible people and that's that's just the way history works so i prefer to sort of just sit with the tensions and the flaws and the sins of people in the past, including people that we regard as enormously influential and consequential and brilliant like Jefferson, and just learn from it, uh, but not feel the obligation either to apologize or obscure or excuse on one hand or to destroy and forget about on the other. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, not to glorify it nor to gloss over it. Um, because we have to just let history, as you said, let the chips fall where they may, um, and look at these men and look at these the men and women of history, and realize that they're broken, they're sinners just like the rest of us. That's not again not to gloss over their sin or their moral failings, and some have great moral failings and are not em- exemplars by any means or any stretch of the imagination. So I think that's helpful as we kind of look back because that's one, as you well know, one of the big questions that people have today is how do we regard history? Um, and I, I think that's really helpful advice. 
obviously we could keep this going for a very long time. Uh, you're a wealth of information, but I do want to ask one specific question that I always ask of our guests here on the podcast, and that's specifically about resources. So one of the things that we try to do on this podcast is challenge people, kind of push the conversation forward, not only intellectually, but getting into some of the debates over philosophy and ethics and theology, especially in the public square. And one of the reasons I was glad to have you on the podcast is helping us to have kind of a historical perspective on some sense of the public square about Jefferson, the public square of Jefferson's time. So what counsel or what resources or what books might you recommend if someone was kind of interested not only in Jefferson, but maybe some of the ideas of that time, books or resources that you would recommend folks to pick up in light of that, obviously outside of your own, which we'll want to promote from Yale. Uh, but this outside of those, um, are there any kind of titles that you would recommend? Sure. Well, I mean, it's easy to come up with editions uh, of Jefferson's own writings, uh, which I think is is probably the place to start because he is such a brilliant writer. Uh, though even in in his own writings, like Notes on the State of Virginia, you you can see that those tensions and contradictions. I mean, he says slavery is immoral in Notes, but then he has just appallingly racist things to say about African Americans in Notes on the State of Virginia, hair raising stuff. So anyway, but of course, his political writings are, are nearly unparalleled as far as just the, the brilliance and the concision and, and, and often in, informed at least by theistic assumptions. If you're going to pick uh, secondary titles, you know, other uh, historians' works on, on Jefferson, I mean, there are many, many. Um, but a couple that come to mind for me, um, one would be uh, Daniel Dreisbach's work, who is one of our top experts on, on Jefferson. And in particular, uh, he, his book, uh, Thomas Jefferson and the Wall of Separation from New York University Press about, uh, about 20 years ago is, is definitely the best book that we have on Jefferson and church-state separation and what particularly Jefferson meant by the Wall of Separation metaphor that he used in a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association in 1802. And one more would be uh, if people are interested in the whole Sally Hemings, uh, the, the key historian on that is uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, who has written a couple of books about Hemings and, and the Hemings family. I, I probably would particularly recommend The Hemingses of Monticello by Annette Gordon-Reed, which won the Pulitzer Prize a, a number of years back. And so it's not only about Sally Hemings, but it's about the whole Hemings family, uh, many members of which uh, the Jefferson family owned as, as slaves. Well, Dr. Kidd, I really appreciate not only your work and the, the resources that you're producing, but the way you approach this. And so I just really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on the Digital Public Square. We'll make sure to link to your new book with Yale, as well as some of those recommended resources you mentioned in the show notes. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Kidd and learn more about his new book, as well as the recommended resources he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology in the public square, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted and produced by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.